Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. We renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles from our Declaration of Independence, founding fathers and other great patriots who made those principles come to life, the key documents and speeches which embody them, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org, where there are superb resources, including founding documents, prior podcast episodes, a video tour of a courthouse, and other patriotic, fabulous items to learn from and share. I am Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two tremendous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skanuchny, who is the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, IT sales guru and master home repairman. Today, we continue our in-depth review of the Declaration of Independence. If we want to preserve and defend our liberties, we need to understand the foundation in which they rest. There are forces around the world, and right here in the United States, that want nothing more than to tear us down. Our best defense? knowledge and acting on that knowledge. If you've missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. But if not, please join us right here and right now. When we return, we will examine the following grievances from the Declaration of Independence. Quote, he has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records, for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time, after such dissolutions, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. Unquote. We will return in just a minute to discuss these critical grievances against King George III. Welcome back, our fellow patriots. In our last regular episode, we explored the first two grievances that the colonists made against the king. They both involved the king's refusal to approve laws passed by the colonial legislatures, either directly by the king himself or when the king instructed the colonial governors to avoid approving them. This theme of subverting the social compact and self-government by undermining colonial legislatures continues in the next set of grievances. The third grievance against the king is as follows, quote, he has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. Unquote. You might remember that Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence and that he foreshadowed the first two grievances in a 1774 work, A Summary View of the Rights of British America. And indeed, the third grievance is also laid out in this passage of a summary view. But in what terms, reconcilable to majesty, and at the same time to truth, shall we speak of a late instruction to his majesty's governor of the colony of Virginia, by which he is forbidden assent to any law for the division of a county, unless the new county will consent to have no representative in assembly? Okay, let's unpack this grievance. Jefferson is explaining that Virginia wants to create a new county and the king refuses to allow his Virginia governor to approve the creation of the new county 
unless the people in the new county give up the right to have representatives in the Virginia legislature. That is the House of Burgesses. Now, this might seem a bit confusing. How could Virginia even create a new county? Why would a new county be necessary? What were the colonists thinking? Well, remember, this is colonial America. The western boundaries were not yet fixed like they are today. The colonists wanted to go west. Westward ho! The discovery of gold in this state has encouraged every outlaw and criminal west of the Mississippi to move in here among you. They're growing fast, stealing, destroying, murdering, and living by their guns at the expense of the decent and respectable citizens. Yes, that is John Wayne in the 1935 classic, Westward Ho! But, uh, Judge, I don't think that's exactly what the founders were considering. I don't care what our friends say, you can never pull the wool over Mike Gerard's eyes. And he's right, there were not Bendetti and gold diggers in Virginia, but there was a wanderlust to go west. Jefferson fleshed out the circumstances in a summary view when he explained that Virginia, That colony has affixed no boundary to the westward. Their western counties, therefore, are of indefinite extent. Some of them are actually seated many hundreds of miles from their eastern limits. In other words, the current counties on the western end of Virginia were enormous because the Virginians basically just took the end of the last fully formed county and drew parallel lines, north and south, westward across hundreds of miles of frontier. That is the land occupied by Native Americans. Again, I know it is hard to imagine today, but the westward boundaries of Virginia were, for the Virginians, not the First Peoples, really pretty much unexplored territory, a vast wilderness. Jefferson raised three major objections to not allowing new counties to be created out of these enormous existing jurisdictions. One was practical, but with ramifications that affected one of the very vital purposes of government, the establishment of justice. A summary view asked, It is possible, then, that His Majesty can have bestowed a single thought on the situation of those people who, in order to obtain justice for injuries, however great or small, must, by the laws of that colony, attend their county court at such a distance, with all their witnesses, monthly, till their litigation be determined? Remember, there was no internet, no trains, no cars, no trucks, and only a scant road system. You went as far as your horse could take you in a day. Travel was onerous and often dangerous, and the king's refusal to allow new counties to be organized presented serious, real-world obstacles to obtaining justice. Now also remember, what the king decided was that for the Virginians, you can have your new counties, but you lose your right to vote in your colonial assembly. Jefferson realized that this was motivated by the worst possible sentiments. Either the king wanted to deprive his subjects of the English right to self-government, or the king wanted to more easily control the legislature. A summary view continues. Or does his majesty seriously wish and publish it to the world that his subjects should give up the glorious right of representation with all the benefits derived from that and submit themselves the absolute slaves of his sovereign will? Or is it rather meant to confine the legislative body to their present numbers, that they may be the cheaper bargain, wherever they shall be worth a purchase? The founders believed that the king's motives here were obvious. The imposition of tyranny and the corruption of the legislature. And Jefferson's concerns were not just Virginia's. The king took the same stand in Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and New Hampshire. For example, New York tried to provide representation to the new counties of Cumberland in 1766 and Albany in 1768, only to be foiled by the empire. 
Before the end of the French and Indian War, also known as the Seven Years' War, the king regularly allowed the expansion of the colonies to the west, and there was no controversy that the colonists should be represented in the colonial legislatures. However, after the war, the king looked upon the western counties with heightened suspicion. Their populations were considered to be patriotic, that is, patriotic to Virginia, and aggressive in protecting their rights against the crown. No need to enfranchise them. Now, some scholars point to what was going on in Canada as the origin of this grievance, but that seems misplaced. They overlook the controversies involving the extension of counties. In addition, there is a very specific grievance later that clearly refers to Canada, and we'll get to that in later episodes. This third grievance seemed rather petty to the British. In their view, upstart colonials who were pushing the boundaries of the empire simply had no right to representation in the colonial legislatures. This is yet another example of the huge chasm that had opened up between the Americans and the British. Americans understood that for a government to be just, the people had to be part of the social compact, and the government's actions had to be based on the consent of the people. By forcing the colonists who wished to move westward to give up their right to representation, the empire was violating the social compact, infringing on the unalienable rights of the people, undermining the rule of law, and subverting equality. Subjects who remained behind were being afforded greater rights than those who were on the outskirts of the colonies. Those who ventured west, well, they didn't count. As Jefferson explained, the only reason to fear giving all colonists the same rights was the unjustified fear that the king had for those bound west. The king didn't care. He was forcing the people to forfeit their fundamental rights. How do you stop? He was a despotic tyrant. For the fourth grievance, we turn the episode over to bombastic Brett Bassett. Take it away. Thanks, Judge. I never heard of that grievance involving westward expansion and counties in my K-12 history or law school education. Very interesting. The fourth grievance continues the theme of subverting the colonial legislatures chosen by the people. This particular one involves not undermining representation per se, but instead to making the lives of the legislatures miserable so the king could overpower them. To understand this grievance, we need to appreciate that in the colonial era, although the capitals of each colony were generally fixed in one city, the king and each colonial governor had the authority to, at their own whim, move where any specific legislature would meet. Also, the king or governor could call the legislature into session whenever he wanted. Again, remember, moving around even a single colony could be quite burdensome and a lengthy, arduous process, and the records of official business were usually housed in one location at the general capital. There was no internet or easy access to official records, so if the legislature moved from its normal capital, it would be separated from the voluminous official records it needed to conduct official business. Now we have a better sense for the fourth grievance. Quote, he has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. Unquote. To put this into finer context, to raise money to help pay down the enormous war debt from the French and Indian War, the English Parliament passed the Stamp Act in 1765, which imposed a set of taxes on the colonists, but without their consent. This led to massive protests by the colonists. 
The protests were so intense in Charleston, South Carolina, that the governor ordered the South Carolina legislature, who supported the protests, to meet in Buford. This was most uncomfortable and fatiguing and forced the legislatures away from the public records maintained in Charleston. Eventually, because of mass resistance engendered by the Tax Act throughout the colonies, the Parliament backed off and repealed the Stamp Act. But, having learned nearly nothing, the Parliament very quickly thereafter passed a new set of taxes, commonly referred to as the Townsend Acts of 1767, named after Charles Townsend, the British Chancellor of the Exchequer. Think of him as the Secretary of the Treasury. Among other things, he is famous for having delivered his immortal champagne speech in Parliament. It was called that because, well, observers thought he was drunk as a skunk. Horace Walpole, 4th Earl of Oxford, an English Whig politician and writer, noted that the speech, quote, was at once a proof that Townsend's abilities were superior to all men and his judgment below that of any man. Hey Brent, that sounds just like us up north on Guy's Weekend. Hey, Mike Gerard, what happens on Guy's Weekend is supposed to stay at Guy's Weekend. Okay guys, back to Townsend. Maybe I'll try to edit this out. Maybe not. Alrighty then. The Townsend Acts added duties to the importation of glass, lead, paints, and tea in the colonies. Protests again broke out across the colonies, and boycotts of British goods spread like wildfire. The protests against the Townsend Acts in Boston were so intense that four regiments of British troops were sent to Boston to tamp down on the opposition to unjust taxes. The Massachusetts Assembly which was based in Boston, protested that they were surrounded by British troops, a most intimidating circumstance. The governor reacted, not by pulling out the troops, but by ordering that the Massachusetts Assembly move to Cambridge. The legislature then had to schlep over to Cambridge, felt fatigued and coerced, and were separated from the indispensable public records maintained in Boston. But the empire was not done with Massachusetts. A few years later, the assembly was subjected to even worse treatment. After the Boston Tea Party, the Parliament passed the Boston Port Bill, moving the colonial capital to Salem, which was significantly further than Cambridge. Of course, the key public records remained in Boston, guarded by two regiments of soldiers. These circumstances were transparent attempts to grind down the oppositional legislatures and make them ineffectual by separating them from the records they needed to conduct the public's business. The king was trying to fatigue and coerce them into submission. Because of the wonderful interstate highway, train, and air travel systems we have today, as well as the internet and mass communication, this might seem hard to equate in today's society. For example, Forcing the California legislature to move from Sacramento to San Diego, which is hundreds of miles, might be inconvenient, but it wouldn't be considered crippling or paralyzing to the legislature. They could get there, stay in hotels, and access their documents by computer. 
Perhaps a better example would be making the Texas legislature based in Austin to meet in Lasaka, Zambia, with no internet or electronic communications once they arrived. This oppressive tactic subverted self-government, the social compact, and the unalienable rights of the people, another brick in the wall of British tyranny. For the fifth grievance, we turn the episode over to Mike Gerard, Skenechny, host of his own special podcast, Be Reasonable, with Mike Gerard. Why, thank you, bombastic Brent Bassett. Now, the fifth grievance is in the same vein as the fourth, but cuts even deeper. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. What this means is that the colonial legislatures were basically ordered to stop meeting. And when that happened, the terms of the legislators ended. And the legislature could only meet again if they were called back into session by the king or the respective governor. And when the British imposed oppressive measures, the colonial legislatures objected to the infringement of the social compact and the inalienable rights of the people, and the governors told them to go home. I mean, that's hard for us to imagine today, but there's a great example of this a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The rebellion will continue to gain a support in the Imperial Senate. Yeah, the Imperial long- Senate will no longer be of any concern to us. I have just received word that the Emperor has dissolved the Council permanently. The last remnants of the Old Republic have been swept away. It's impossible. How will the Emperor maintain control without the bureaucracy? The regional governors now have direct control over their territories. Fear will keep the local systems in line. Yep, and what they're talking about there, on the Death Star no less, is the Emperor's dissolution of the Imperial Senate and the replacement of rule of the Galactic Empire by the Emperor and his regional governors. And that's pretty much what was happening in colonial America. But, as far as I know, George III wasn't a Sith and his Prime Ministers didn't wield lightsabers, as far as we know. But this grievance again echoed what Jefferson had written in a summer review. First, Jefferson noted, since the glorious revolution of 1688, that the king and the ministers disavowed any authority to dissolve parliament. But that wasn't the case in the colonies. One of the articles of impeachment against Tresillian and the other judges of Westminster Hall in the reign of Richard II, for which they had suffered death as traitors to their country, was that they had advised the king that he might dissolve the parliament at any time. And succeeding kings have adopted the opinion of these unjust judges. Since the establishment, however, of the British Constitution at the Glorious Revolution, on its free and ancient principles, neither His Majesty nor his ancestors have exercised such a power of dissolution on the island of Great Britain. And when His Majesty was petitioned by the united voice of his people there to dissolve the present Parliament, who had become obnoxious to them, his ministers were heard to declare in open Parliament that His Majesty possessed no such power by the Constitution. But how different their language and his practice is here. To declare, as their duty required, the known rights of their country, to oppose the usurpations of every foreign judiciary, to disregard the imperious mandates of a minister of governor, have been the avowed causes of dissolving the houses of representatives in America. 
But if such powers be really vested in his majesty, can he suppose they are placed to all the members for such purposes as these? When the representative body has lost the confidence of their constituents, when they have notoriously made sale of their most valuable rights, when they have assumed to themselves powers which the people never put into their hands, then indeed their continuing in office becomes dangerous to the state and calls for an exercise of the power of dissolution, such being the causes for which the representative body should and should not be dissolved, will it not appear strange to an unbiased observer that in Great Britain was not resolved? Well, those of the colonists have been repeatedly incurred that sentence. But your majesty or your governors have carried this power beyond every limit known or provided for by the laws. In other words, Jefferson is noting that if there is a power to dissolve a legislative body, it should only be used for very narrow reasons, such as the legislature has lost the confidence of the people, or because the legislature is corrupt or has overstepped its bounds. And if such a power exists, then it should be the parliament in England, not the legislatures in the colonies, that is subject to dissolution, or at least both should be dissolved together. Instead, Jefferson explained the governors abused their authority to dissolve the legislatures in the colonies by acting to crush political opposition to unjust and unconstitutional British actions. One early example of the basis for this grievance involved the New York Provincial Assembly's refusal to go along with a quartering act that was passed in the 1760s. The Quartering Act directed the colony of New York to pay for the housing of 1,500 British regular soldiers stationed in the colony. The New York legislature refused, and the soldiers were required to stay on Navy ships. New Yorkers' resistance to the Quartering Act was hot and even led to a small skirmish. The Parliament responded on June 15, 1767 by passing the New York Restraining Act. In essence, it provided that any laws passed by the New York legislature after October 1st of that year were null and void until the legislature complied with the Quartering Act. However, the Restraining Act never took effect because the New York legislature backed down and agreed to pay. In essence, the British Parliament, with the full backing of the king, coerced the New Yorkers into submission by threatening to disembowel their legislature. A more prominent example of this suppression of the right of self-government came in 1765 in Virginia, when the Stamp Act was passed. Initial resistance in the colony was uncertain and hesitating, but Patrick Henry, all but a freshman legislator, railed against taxation without representation. He was able to convince the initially sleepy and complacent House of Burgesses to adopt a set of resolutions condemning the Stamp Act in the most strenuous terms. The governor responded by, you guessed it, dissolving the House of Burgesses. A similarly politically motivated dissolution of several other legislative assemblies occurred a few days later. What motivated these colonial governors was the Massachusetts Circular Letter to the Colonial Legislatures, which was drafted by Samuel Adams and James Otis Jr. and adopted by the Massachusetts Assembly on February 11, 1768. The circular letter attacked the Townsend Acts and declared that it is an essential, unalterable right to nature and drafted into the British Constitution as a fundamental law 
and ever held sacred and irrevocable by the subjects within the realm. That's when a man has honestly acquired is absolutely his own, which he may freely give, but cannot be taken from him without his consent. That the American subjects may, therefore, exclusive of any consideration of charter rights, with a decent firmness, adapted to the character of free men and subjects, assert this natural and constitutional right. It is, moreover, their humble opinion that the acts made there, imposing duties on the people of this province, with the sole and express purpose of raising a revenue, are infringements of their natural and constitutional rights, because, as they are not represented in the British Parliament, His Majesty's Commons in Britain, by those acts, grant their property without their consent. So what's happening here is that the circular letter declared any attempt to tax the colonists without their consent violated their natural rights and their constitutional rights as Englishmen. It declared that the colonists must use decent firmness to oppose it. The circular letter was directed to the legislatures of all the colonies. Declaring that the letter was seditious, Virginia Governor Francis Bernard demanded that the legislature rescind it. When the assembly refused, Governor Bernard responded by, you guessed it, dissolving the Virginia Assembly and stationing troops in Boston. Although the Earl of Hillsborough, in essence the new Secretary of State for the American colonies, instructed the remaining colonial governments to prevent other assemblies from following Virginia's lead, they did so anyways. In 1769, the Virginia legislature passed resolutions attacking the dissolution of the Massachusetts Assembly and the stationing of troops in Boston, and they even drafted a formal letter of protest to the king, and, once again, you guessed it, the king dissolved the Virginia legislature as well. Because South Carolina and Georgia refused to follow Lord Hillsborough's directive that the circular letter should be met with the contempt it deserves, those governors shut down their legislative assemblies. South Carolina's House of Commons was again dissolved in 1769 when it ordered the payment of 1,500 pounds sterling to support John Wilkes, a radical English member of Parliament who was wildly popular in the colonies. Within 18 months, Governor Lord Charles Greville Montague dissolved the South Carolina Assembly four times. South Carolinians responded by demanding that the governor be recalled. In essence, the royal government in South Carolina died in 1771, four years ahead of the rest of America. Virginia's Legislative Assembly was dissolved again in May 1769 when it passed another set of resolves condemning the revival of a law that allowed persons accused of treason to be shipped across the sea for a trial in England. Lord Governor Botetort announced, Your resolves augur ill. My duty is to dissolve you. In reaction, the Burgesses just walked down to Raleigh Tavern. Drink with me Today's gone by To the life That used to be at the shrine of friendship 
never say die Let the wine of friendship never run dry Here's to you Here's to you And Uh, Mike Gerard, that's from Les Miserables. Different country, different era, different circumstance. But have you noticed that in this so-called French musical, and remember, I'm the Francophile in this podcast, that all the actors, whatever version, have English accents. It's Yeah, that's right. It's totally ridiculous. Seriously, I mean, the French have an entirely different culture and accent. It is a travesty. Hey, 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 wait a minute. We are supposed to be discussing the Declaration of Independence. Not be theater critics. Get back to work, skin. Thanks, bombastic Brent, for bringing us back to the topic. So the Virginia legislature gets dissolved. They head over to the Raleigh Tavern, and I'm pretty sure they drank quite a bit. And then, led by Peyton Randolph, they created an association of non-import, which basically kicked off a new round of boycotts against British goods. In 1773, the House of Burgesses set up an official Committee of Correspondence, and it was dissolved yet again. And it was dissolved again and again on May 1774, when it issued a call to convene the First Continental Congress and support for Boston when England cracked down after the Boston Tea Party. The Burgesses had issued a resolution of support for Massachusetts and declared June 1, 1774 as a day of public fasting, humiliation, and prayer in favor of Boston. The legislature had only been in session three weeks, and that was three weeks too long in the view of Governor Dunmore. Having seen that, done that, most of the Virginia legislature went over to Raleigh Tavern that very day, approved another boycott association, and called for a convention to be held at Williamsburg that summer to choose delegates for the First Continental Congress. Other prominent examples of when colonial legislatures were dissolved in reaction to political opposition included when the legislatures of Virginia and North Carolina challenged the right of the king to tax without representation or to ship out criminal defendants out of the colonies for trials. Suffice it to say that with every passing year, the colonial legislatures became more bold challenging, in the words of the Declaration of Independence, with manly firmness, the despotic attacks of the king and parliament. And with each passing year, the governors grew more desperate in trying to beat them down by dissolving them. Repeatedly, even former governor of Massachusetts and loyalist Thomas Hutchinson, when vigorously attacking the Declaration of Independence, had to admit, Contention between governors and their assemblies have caused disillusions of such assemblies, I suppose, in all the colonies, in former as well as later times. Yep, you got it. Every colonial legislature had been dissolved at one time or another. In fact, the legislatures basically were out of business even before the revolution. When the First Continental Congress met in 1774, 10 of the 13 legislatures were shut down. Silas Downer was a graduate of Harvard, a minor political appointee, a famous lawyer with the finest of reputations, a son of liberty, and a member of the Committee of Correspondence, as well as several other local political organizations in Rhode Island. He expressed the American sentiment in his Discourse at the Dedication of the Tree of Liberty in 1768. Nothing which has yet happened ought to alarm us more than the suspending government here, because our parliaments or assemblies who ought to be free, do not in their votes and resolutions 
pleased the populace of Great Britain. Suppose a parcel of mercenary troops in England should go to the Parliament House and order the members to vote as they directed under pain of dissolution, how much liberty would be left to them? In short, this dissolving of government upon such pretenses as are formed leaves not the semblance of liberty to the people. We all ought to resent the treatment which the Massachusetts Bay have had, as their cause may soon become our own. Just take a minute and think about that. Let's say the legislature in Texas has a dispute with the governor. Would the citizens of Texas tolerate just letting the governor send the legislature packing? This isn't a partisan issue. It deals with the separation of powers and the right of the voice of the people to be heard in lawmaking through their elected representatives. To cut it down is an affront to the limited government, the social compact, and the rule of law. The colonists would have none of it. They firmly determined to challenge and oppose this despotic policy. The sixth grievance follows this concern of the dissolution of the colonial legislatures with a twist. Ha! We got Mike Gerard again with another clip of the Beatles. Oh, jeez. I didn't mean twist and shout. And, by the way, that's just the Beatles doing a cover. That is true, but what a great cover it was. Thanks, Mike Gerard. I'll take the sixth grievance, which is, quote, He has refused for a long time, after such dissolutions, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining, in the meantime, exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions from within, unquote. Jefferson also outlined this grievance in his summary view. But your majesty or your governors have carried this power beyond every limit known or provided for by the laws. After dissolving one house of representatives, they have refused to call another, so that for a great length of time the legislature provided by the laws has been out of existence. From the nature of things, every society must at all times possess itself the sovereign powers of legislation. The feelings of human nature revolt against the supposition of a state so situated as it may not in any emergency provide against dangers which perhaps threaten immediate ruin. While those bodies are in existence to whom the people have deluged the power of legislation, they alone possess and may exercise those powers. But when they are dissolved by the lopping off of one or more of their branches, the power reverses to the people who may exercise it to a limited extent, either assembling together in person, sending deputies, or in any other way they may think proper. We forbear to trace consequences further. The dangers are conspicuous with which this practice is replete. Basically, the grievance here is that the dissolution of legislative bodies extended way beyond any time under tradition, custom, and the law. And what happens then? The entire idea of representative government collapses. Without a legislature, the power to legislate returns to the sovereign, that is, the people. But this returns us to the state of nature that we are all trying to avoid. With no government, there is no central authority that protects the unalienable rights of the people. There is no rule of law, there is no peace, no due process, no order, no security, no military, no border protection. The people are subject to convulsions from within, 
and invasions from without. We devolve into the nightmare that English philosophers Thomas Hobbes and John Locke warned us about, the war of awe against awe. Massachusetts was also again victimized by the despotism expressed in this grievance. As mentioned a few minutes ago, in the late 1760s, the Massachusetts legislature opposed with manly firmness the Townsend Acts, and in reaction, the governor dissolved the assembly. Months passed by, and Boston asked the governor to call into session a new assembly. He refused. Former Governor Hutchinson explained the situation from the loyalist point of view. This vacation of three months was the long time that people waited before they exercised their unalienable powers. The invasions from without were the arrival or expectation of three or four regiments sent by the king to aid the civil magistrate in preserving the peace. And the convulsions within were the tumults, riots, and acts of violence which this convention was called, not to suppress, but to encourage. Of course, from the Patriot standpoint, any tumults, riots, and acts of violence were engendered by the governor stripping the people the right to representation and violating the social compact. When the governor finally conceded to convening a new legislative assembly, over a year had passed. The assembly was then surrounded by a military guard, and cannons were aimed at their building. The legislature refused to meet, and their powers once again vanished, and the people soaked them up. These wounds were also inflicted in the people of Virginia. Beginning in 1774, Governor Lord Dunmore originally refused his own executive council's recommendation to call for new elections for the House of Burgesses and reconstitute the previously dissolved assembly. Eventually, the elections were held, but the new house was not convened for over a year after it had been dissolved. In 1775, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Virginia asked the First Continental Congress what they should do in light of the fact that there was no legislative body. Congress responded that they should establish governments that will, quote, best promote the happiness of the people, unquote, and, quote, most effectually secure peace and good order, unquote. Bombastic Brent, can you tell us what happened in South Carolina in particular? Of course, Judge. South Carolina may be the most stunning example of this grievance. In 1769, the South Carolina legislature borrowed 1,500 pounds sterling from the Treasury to donate to a charity that was aiding John Wilkes. Now, this could be seen as a provocation, since Wilkes was a radical Whig English parliamentarian who was a huge thorn in the side of the King and the Tories in Parliament. The Whigs were in essence the liberty, populist-oriented party, and the Tories favored the king and noble prerogatives. The South Carolina legislature later tried to appropriate money to repay the loan the legislature had made to fund Wilkes. The king directed his appointed executive council to veto this action. In fact, the legislature was disabled from raising any taxes in 1769. In 1771, they went even further and prohibited the South Carolina legislature from passing any laws at all. The attempt to cow the legislature into submission failed. The legislature would not back down. In effect, royal authority was missing in South Carolina from 1769 until the Revolution. In 1775, South Carolina, following the advice of the First Continental Congress, 
actually created a provincial government of its own, totally bypassing the English Empire. In the end, even Loyalist former Governor Hutchinson once again had to concede that by 1774 there were no legitimate legislative assemblies in the colonies. Judge Warren, back to you. Thanks, bombastic Brent Bassett. The third through six grievances were vitally important. They were at the core of freedom, self-government, and unalienable rights. The social compact had been violated in serious and grievous ways by the king and parliament. Yet I bet you were never taught this. Such a shame and a slap in the face of the founding generation. Some today claim that the revolution was all about taxes or private property or racism or slavery. They obviously don't know their history, and that's why it's so important to understand it. Some key takeaways from this episode. The Declaration of Independence was not just a declaration of principles and lofty sentiments, but it listed a concrete set of grievances by which the British Empire had violated the first principles of free and just government. The third grievance involved challenging the king's unjust refusal to create new counties in the West unless the people gave up their right to representation in the legislature. The fourth, fifth, and sixth grievances involved the king's and his governor's despotic dissolution of colonial legislatures. Those grievances strike at the heart of the social compact, self-governance, equality, unalienable rights, and the other first principles of a free and just government. Fellow patriots, thank you for listening. And please join us next time for our next general episode when we continue our exploration of the grievances of the Declaration of Independence, in particular the following, quote, He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners refusing to pass others to encourage their migration hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance." Unquote. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. Music.